If you could keep your Bibles open at Luke chapter 9, we're going to look at that together again now, and we will have a chance for questions later on, so if you have any questions, uh, you can ask them then. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we spend time reflecting on your word now, that your spirit will uh, give us ears to hear, hearts to understand, and a conviction to recognise who Jesus really is and to follow him accordingly. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. With all the news headlines that have been going on throughout this year about you know, the significant stuff that's been going on around the world, there's one news headline that might have slipped your attention because it's not quite as significant. That is that from July this year, fantail lollies have been discontinued. Now, you might not have noticed that at all, or you might be one of the many people, apparently, who are absolutely devastated by it. There was, a, there was an outcry about it. There was a rush to get the last packets that were available. Apparently, they were going on eBay for over $100 a packet. That, that's pretty expensive chocolate. I was going to bring some along to, to show you, but I don't want to spend $100 on a, on a packet of lollies. Now, I love fantails as much as, as the next guy, but as more than the kind of the, the chocolatey, caramelly goodness of them that threatens to pull your teeth out as you're chewing it, I particularly like the trivia that's written on the wrappers, right? That's what makes them such classic party snacks, that you can open them up and read the trivia that's written on there. And it's got me wondering, as, as we look at this passage in, in Luke chapter 9 this week, could you write a 50-word blurb, a who am I blurb, for a fantail rapper about Jesus. And what would you write? That who am I question about Jesus is one that has occupied the minds of historians, politicians, religious leaders for centuries, right? How could a poor, uneducated carpenter from the middle of nowhere in the back blocks of the Roman Empire, how could someone like that become the most famous person in history, even after he was abandoned by all his followers and executed at just the age of 30? How could someone like that become the most famous person in history? Surely that at least deserves a 50-word blurb for a fantail rapper. And actually many more billions of words have been written about him, as you know, since then. But however many words, even those are far too trivial when Jesus was walking the streets of northern Israel 2,000 years ago, that question, who is this guy, it was a question that people could not help asking each other. And, and you hear them kind of grasping for the biggest possible answers they can come up with. And it's not just a question for the historians or for religious people. It's a question that demands an answer from every single person on the planet. And in today's passage, you might have noticed Jesus kind of puts that question right on the table and asks for an answer. But it turns out, as we read on, that even the right answer to that who am I question was not big enough for who Jesus really is. And that's what we're looking at today. So as we've been reading through the, the Gospel of Luke, and, and, and ever since Jesus has started making waves with his remarkable teaching, his powerful miracles, his outrageous claims about himself, that question, who am I, has been on people's lips. 
And now, as I said, Jesus wants to get that question out in the open, at least for his disciples. We're told that they're now away from the crowds and in private. And so he asks his disciples that very question. Who do the crowds say that I am? And the disciples report that the crowds have an answer. And all of their ideas are big and impressive and God-related. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets raised to life again. And if any one of those were correct, that in itself would have been a massive thing to say. It's like, as I said, they're they're looking for for answers that that are big and impressive and significant because they recognise that the power of God is at work in Jesus. But all of those answers, as significant as they are, are not big enough. But then Peter, when Jesus asks them, has an even bigger idea. The people the crowds mentioned were significant people. God worked powerfully through them, some of the most significant people in the Old Testament. But they were all messengers, people who pointed forwards to someone else who would come, the Messiah, the king of God's eternal kingdom who would rule forever. And that was Peter's answer. You are God's Messiah. And he's right. Messiah or Christ, those two words mean exactly the same thing in Hebrew and in Greek. It's the title of God's forever king. And we know that Peter is right when he says that. The angels announced it at the birth of Jesus. Jesus himself says it about himself at the end of Luke's gospel. And ever since then, it has become so well known around the world that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, that people think Christ is his last name. You know, Jesus Christ, the son of Mary Christ and Joseph Christ. That's what everyone thinks, right? It's not his name. It's his title. And everyone knows that now. Which makes it all the more surprising that Jesus replies to Peter in verse 21 the way that he does. Did you notice what Jesus says? He strictly commands him not to say that, not to tell anyone. Now, we think Peter should get a gold star and go to the head of the class for getting the right answer. But instead, Jesus silences him immediately. And this is where we discover that Peter's answer was not big enough. Even Peter's answer. Because while Peter might have been right that Jesus is the Messiah, he had no idea what that would actually mean. What kind of Messiah Jesus actually came to be. And Jesus now is about to set him straight. Have a look at verse 22. I'll read from from verse 21. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. That's the kind of Messiah that Jesus is going to be. He's not going to be the Messiah that they are expecting, whatever that might have been. He's certainly not going to be the political revolutionary Messiah who's going to raise an army and take over the the Roman occupiers and re-establish Jerusalem and Israel as a political kingdom of God on earth. Nor is he going to be just a healing Messiah, the guy that you could go to to get your problems solved. Nor is he just going to be the moral teacher who has some helpful tips about how to live better, how to be a be a good person, how to live a better life. Jesus was a Messiah who did not fit the mould 
that they were expecting. To the point where he wouldn't let anyone tell, where he wouldn't let the disciples tell anyone that he was the Messiah until he had done what he came to do. To suffer and die at the hands of the people he came to save and to rise to life again on the third day. Jesus was the Messiah who came to give his life for us so that he could give us life. But that didn't fit what they were expecting. As much as they knew that Jesus was someone significant, their ideas were just not big enough. And even now, 2,000 years later, not much has changed. Jesus is still the most well-known person who has ever walked the earth. But the most popular ideas about him still today are still the small, safe, comfortable ones. Like that he was just a good moral teacher who tells us to love our neighbours. And so we put him up against all the other greats like that, the, the Dalai Lama, Mother Teresa, Nelson Mandela, whoever else you want to put in that category. We put Jesus up next to him. That's the safe, comfortable Jesus who doesn't require too much of us. But Jesus won't allow that. He doesn't leave us that option for who he is. You may be aware that the, the author, C.S. Lewis, the, the author of the, the Narnia stories, he wrote this about that idea of Jesus. He said, A man who was merely a man and said the kind of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus is not that Messiah. He is the Messiah who came to suffer and die and rose to life again to give us life. And any other kind of Messiah has nothing to do with the real Jesus, then or now. So that's the who, I, who am I question for Jesus. But what Jesus does immediately after that, you notice, is he goes straight from that question to the question about us. That is, what kind of followers does he want? What kind of followers does this kind of Messiah want us to be? Because the kind of Messiah he is will affect the kind of followers that we must be. So let me read from verse 23. Then he said to them, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit lose or forfeit their very self. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus gave up his life for us and what he's saying is he's calling us to give up our lives as we follow him. To give up our petty ambitions for life. You know, even world domination, 
It says they're gaining the whole world. What good is it to gain someone the whole world yet forfeit their very self? Even that is a petty ambition compared to the life that Jesus offers. And whatever personal ambitions we might have, whatever achievements we might make in this world, they cannot last and we cannot keep them. They will die in the dust with us. It's like a man in the hot desert who's desperately holding on to a block of ice to keep him cool, even though everyone knows that it's going to melt. And before long, he's going to be left standing there in the heat of the day, in the burning hot sun, with no protection. But he holds on to his block of ice anyway because it feels good now. Jesus offers us to leave the ice behind and the desert behind entirely and come into his garden in the cool shade with the, with the bubbling stream and the gentle breeze, the good life that Jesus calls us to live that is good now but even better in eternity. But you've got to leave the ice and the desert behind. That's the life and the petty ambitions that we desperately cling to as if that's what matters. But make no mistake, we choose now what matters for eternity. Will it be the life that ends in death and judgment, the life that Jesus died to free us from, or will we give up that life to take hold of the life that Jesus offers for free? Because we can't hold on to both. Following Jesus is not a part-time hobby where I continue to live exactly the same life, continue to live the same as everyone else around me, the same ambitions, the same desires, the same goals, but with a bit of church and Jesus on the side. That's not following the crucified Messiah. He gives us an entirely new life to live and he calls us to leave the old life behind to follow him. And even what happens next, the glorious transfiguration of Jesus, points us again to the suffering of the Messiah, that the way of the cross is the path to glory. Now, about, about a week later, we're told in verse 28, Jesus takes Peter, John and James up a mountain and there he is transformed into his heavenly glory. His, his, his face changes, his clothes are flashing, dazzling, bright. And two of the most significant people in the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, appear there with Jesus. I mean, what an absolutely dazzling right, display of, of power and significance. And you can imagine, can't you, Peter and, and James and John saying, now that's more like it, Jesus. That's the Messiah that I'm talking about. Enough with this talk about suffering and death. This is the, this is the Jesus we want to see. But did you notice that even this glorious Jesus, with the greatest men of the Old Testament, did you see what they're talking about in verse 31? They spoke about his departure which he was about to bring to fulfilment at Jerusalem. They're speaking about his death. They're speaking about the very thing that he had just told his disciples that must happen, his suffering, his death and resurrection. That as glorious as this Jesus who is standing in front of them is, he still has that mission in his sights. Because that's the Messiah he is. That's how he takes his throne as the king of the kingdom of God and he gives us life in that kingdom forever. 
Now, Peter, Peter doesn't know what to say. I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments where you don't know what to say, but you say something anyway. You know, some of us just can't just handle the silence and just feel the need to blurt something out in that situation. And like, you can almost always guarantee that if that happens, whatever it is that you blurt out is going to be something stupid. Right? And that's certainly what happens for Peter. Now, I think we love Peter because we can identify with him. Right? He's certainly not perfect. And sometimes he just comes across as a bit of a bumbling idiot and only opens his mouth to put the other foot in. And that's certainly what happens this time. He suggests that they pitch some tents for Jesus and Moses and Elijah, which just sounds bizarre, right? Because it, it is. But it's more than just bizarre. Peter is trying to get them to stay. He's trying to hold on to this moment. The glorious Jesus with his glorious heroes. He wants them to stay. But Jesus has just been saying, and they've just been talking about, that that's not the plan. The plan is to go to Jerusalem, to die. And sometimes when you're saying something stupid, it's a blessing when someone interrupts you. And when that someone who interrupts you is the voice of God from heaven, then you better listen to what he has to say. You better pay attention. And so listen to what God says when he interrupts Peter. Verse 35. This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Now, there's no question of who Jesus is. He is God's son. He is the Messiah. So don't make up for yourself a Jesus who fits into the box that is convenient for me. Listen to him. Listen to what he says he will do. Listen to the kind of Messiah that he says he is. And listen to the kind of followers that he says we must be if we want to follow him. So Jesus didn't give his life for us so that we can just carry on living exactly the same life that we've always lived, the life that cannot last, the life that will melt away in the burning heat of the desert, the life of petty ambitions and reputation. Jesus came to give us something better and he calls us to leave those things behind and here's the thing, right? He, he's not just talking to the super Christians. You know, sometimes I wonder if we hear Jesus say outrageous things like this and we think that's the, that's the missionaries, right? The super Christians who, who give up their entire life and go to some far-flung corner of the world. And, and I keep thinking and people keep talking as, as we look at, at this about the Jennings, right? Or some of our other missionaries on the, on the board back there. But, you know, the, the, the Jennings, our missionaries in, in the Philippines... Within months of becoming Christians, they had sold their house and made plans to travel across the country and then across the world to go to some tiny village in the Philippines to tell people about Jesus. And they've been doing that for more than 40 years. Has that cost them? In the currency of this world, sure, yes, of course it has. And yet, when you talk to them, you can't help but hear the, the joy of what it has been like to invest in the things of eternity, to invest in the life that Jesus gives for themselves and also to share with others. I mean, what, what an encouragement. But as I said, that is not just Jesus' words to the super missionary Christians, the one in a thousand among us. 
He's talking to anyone who would follow him. That following Jesus is not just a part-time hobby while we get on with the same life, the same desires, the same ambitions as everyone around us. And, and I have to say, for me, one of, the, one of the great joys is to get to see new Christians who really get this in a way that perhaps, dare I say, that people who've been Christians for a while maybe tend to forget. They discover this new life that Jesus gives and they realise how good it is. The, the forgiveness and love, the joy and peace, the holiness and righteousness for life now and for eternity. And they know how much better that is than the petty ambitions that we would otherwise live for. The, the wealth, the comfort, the popularity or reputation, a desire to be seen as significant for just a few years by the, people, the few people around us that we know, or whatever our ambitions might be, even if it is gaining the whole world. Does it cost to leave those things behind? Of course it does but only in the things that don't last anyway. And living for those things ends in death and judgment. The life that Jesus gives is so much better now, if we believe it, and in eternity. What what a blessing to be reminded of the goodness of the life that Jesus gives us. And I suspect that that for most of us here, Jesus is more significant than just a answer to a trivia question on a fantail wrapper. I suspect that he's more significant than that for us. But is he big enough that we give our whole lives to follow him in the big decisions that we make and in the small decisions that we make every day so that we stop trying to live with a foot in both worlds? Now, we still live in this world, yes, but if we're living for Jesus, then we're not living for this world. We are living for something better. Is that the Jesus who you are following? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that these words of Jesus will sink down deep into our hearts, that they'll resonate in our ears and our minds to recognise just how great Jesus is, just how great what he has done for us is, and the real life that he has called us to follow him to live. Father, help us to be willing to leave behind those things that are not really life and to look forward to and live now for the life that Jesus gives. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.